And so I posted a picture of my goofy looking dog and got a bunch of likes. And then I posted other pictures and no one seemed to care. And I sort of had this light bulb moment. I was like, wow, dogs are amazing. And people love looking at pictures of other people's dogs, including myself. I was following strangers on Instagram because I really liked their Boston Terrier, their French Bulldog. And I just thought it would be really cool. Here's this new platform and it's very visual. It would be really cool if there was one account you could follow that would sort of bring this community of dog lovers together. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Have you ever come up with what you thought was a really clever social media handle, sure to be your key to fame and fortune, only to find it's been taken? Ahmed El Sherbagi is the envy of all would-be influencers. He's the guy who grabbed the handle Dogs of Instagram. It happened not with a business plan in mind. Influencer marketing wasn't even a thing back in the early days of Instagram. It was just a fun way to gather cute images of dogs. But as the following grew to hundreds, thousands, and then millions, Ahmed started seeing the possibilities. He and his wife, Ashley, parlayed a following that now stands at 4.7 million into a retail brand and platform they named after, who else? Their dog. Lucy & Co. specializes in stylish dog accessories and apparel. You know, for dogs of Instagram. It took a while to find its footing, but it's now an e-commerce brand that is growing quickly, especially with dog ownership skyrocketing and more of us at home thinking about new ways to dress our pets. For anyone with kids at home who dream of becoming social media stars, Ahmed and Ashley offer so much valuable perspective on the opportunities and the realities of building a brand online. Ashley Ahmed, I am extremely honored that our little podcast was worthy of a babysitter. That's a big deal, <laughs> to be babysitter worthy. <laughs> Has that happened very often in the last eight months? In 2020? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. You have a new baby at home. We have a new baby, and we've had a preschooler at home, too, but he's back in school. And and you're both smiling, and you've been quarantining with a toddler and a baby. What has that been like for your family and for your business? It's definitely introduced a whole bunch of new challenges and we're used to challenges uh, we seem to always have timed things weirdly we, we we put out a book back in 2016 and I think we finalized it a week before our wedding and so you know this is not it wasn't really new to us to have challenges but it certainly did introduce a whole bunch of new uh, challenges uh, you know being at home with a, a four-year-old and a newborn and using the home as our office, that was a brand new challenge. 
Yeah, if you want to prepare for a pandemic in unprecedented times, I think uh, start a small business and <laughs> fly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> and then have a baby in the middle of it all, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> well, well. well, well, let's let's go back and, and we'll we'll get to to present day, but let's go all the way back. Ahmed, let's start with you. Uh, you were born in Egypt. Yes. Yeah, I was born in Cairo, Egypt, and I moved to the States with my family when I was nine years old, and I moved from Cairo, Egypt to Roseville, Minnesota, <laughs> and that's where, where I spent my most of my childhood. I have to think that is not a real common path. How did you end up in Roseville? So the reason we moved to the States is um, my mom, so my mom and dad had been split up before that. And my mom met a man, uh, an Egyptian American who was living in St. Paul, Minnesota, just completely a complete random coincidence. And so that's why we moved to the States. And so we moved to the place he lived. And it just so happened to be, you know, Minnesota. But, you know, whenever we'd go back and, you know, we people would ask what city or state are you living in? Of course, you know, whenever we, we we said it, you know, people just had a blank face and expression. They, they'd never heard of it. Um, so I would say, oh, it's up north by Canada. <laughs> there you go. And, and was it a smooth transition for you? No. <laughs> no, it was definitely about as much of a culture shock, I think, as you can imagine. Everything from the climate. Um, I was at an age where I had, I was like, young enough to still be like kind of like learning and understanding the world but I was already had already established a foundation I think a little bit in Cairo I had friends and a little bit of a life and my experiences and moving here just everything was so new and so that that came with challenges I mean you can imagine being uh going to your first day of fourth grade and you don't speak the same language as everyone else and kind of having to get caught up and uh so there those first couple of years are definitely kind of a challenge to to assimilate and, and and understand the environment that I was suddenly thrust into yeah i bet um and and would you say by the time you were in high school i mean did you feel did you feel like a Minnesotan? I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what's incredible is at that age, you know, your brain really is still like a sponge. And quickly, you know, my memories from Egypt quickly faded and these became my memories and my my true childhood experiences. So when people ask where I grew up, I say in Roseville, Minnesota, that, you know, um, leaving when I was nine, you know, the first four years, you don't really remember. And, um, you know, the most significant part of my childhood was definitely spent here. So yeah, by high school, I was settled in. Okay, we're going to pause on you and we'll pick up at the University of Minnesota. Ashley, you grew up here in, in the Twin Cities. What was your childhood like? So I grew up in Minneapolis and I was a shop kid. So really, I grew up on 50th in France in the boutiques. Uh, I had a grandmother who had a, an art gallery and a mom and aunt who owned um, a, a gift shop. What, what was it called? It was called Simply Splendid, and it was opened uh, three days after I was born. So when I say I'm a shop kid, I am truly a shop kid. It's uh-huh. all I ever remember from my early, early days of life. And it closed when I was um, just shy of my 16th birthday. Okay. So a lot of my early memories in Minneapolis are on that corner of retail. And um, I spent a lot of time meeting customers and um, 
reading trends that I didn't realize I was learning and absorbing. And really, I learned customer service and interpersonal skills. And did you did you like it? Did you think I want to go into retail one way or the other? I've always found retail really exciting. And I've always found it exciting in the small details and in kind of the warm fuzzies that retail can bring. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think my my career was going to be in it, though. You went to the University of Minnesota and majored in journalism? That's correct. How did you pick that? Well, I was always told that I was a good writer. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with just loving, observing people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up kind of taking the route of public relations. And again, because I was always drawn drawn to um, brands and stories and um, marrying that with the public. Sure. Mm -hmm. And um, Ahmed, you went to the University of Minnesota as well. What did what did you want to do? Did you did you know what you wanted for a career? I did not. Uh, Growing up in an Egyptian household, your options were doctor, engineer, or lawyer, pretty much. (laughs) And so I picked engineer. Um, That's when I enrolled at the University of Minnesota. I went to the Institute of Technology and um, in a a year, and I realized it it wasn't for me. I didn't want to spend my four years of college buried in books and studying. And, um, you know, I knew I had my mind liked numbers and it was quantitative. And so um, I found myself attracted to business, uh, much to, I think, my family's little bit of disappointment at the time. Um, but it, I think it worked out fine. <laughs> they get it now? <laughs> they, they get it, yeah. What about business did you like or where did you see yourself going? I liked that business... Um, would allow me the opportunity to use all parts of my brain, which I think I looking back now that that was the right decision because yes, I I was always good at math and numbers, but I also had always had an interest in like human psychology and I was really drawn to marketing. And so, you know, business really allows you to use whatever skill set you have. And so that's what drew me to it. And plus I think when I was little, now looking back, I think I used to always imagine myself as this like kind of like business guy, like going to meetings, like wearing even, suits. Yeah. <laughs> he desperately yeah. wanted a briefcase. <laughs> yep. Did you get one? Do you yeah. have a briefcase? I, I got one for my birthday from Ashley. Oh, very nice. Um, so did did you go down that path? I mean, did you what was what was your first job out of college? Well, actually, I graduated in summer 2008 so there were no jobs and so instead of sitting around like a lot of my friends did I decided I wasn't ready to enter the job market and so I enrolled at the University of St. Thomas's MBA program and I did a full-time MBA in business with a focus in finance and during that time um, I would say about half our half the cohort um, wanted to go into investment banking it's a common you know, business track. And um, at the time, I thought all I wanted is a job where I could make a lot of money. And so I was like, (laughs) yeah, investment banking sounds great. Um, I did an internship, um, an investment banking internship and my the first summer and I quickly realized it was not for me. And um, so my first job then out of the MBA program was for Target in corporate finance. And how did you like that? I, I liked it. It was a really good first job. Uh, I got to just kind of learn what it's like to have a big boy job, understand how a big 
sophisticated, world-class organization runs. But three years in, I was ready to go. I couldn't do the, the corporate thing. I felt too small in a big pond and I just I needed to go somewhere where my day-to-day life was like a, maybe a little bit more exciting and something that felt more entrepreneurial. And at that time, while I was at Target was also when I launched Dogs of Instagram. So I had this side project that I was doing on my breaks and at lunch and after work and on the weekends. Okay, so that before we talk, before we dive into Dogs of Instagram, um, w- when did the two of you meet? Did you know each other at this point? Did you meet at the U of M? We did not meet at the U of M. We met by way of mutual friends from the U of M. And I met Ahmed on day 10 of Dogs of Instagram. Okay. And, and what were you doing at that time, Ashley? Were you working in PR? At that time, I was helping a startup here um, with their communication strategy. It was a, a small, scrappy team. Um, they were interested in millennials and what they were doing on their phones and specifically what they were doing on their apps. Around the time that I was, um, I met Ahmed, he casually mentioned that he was a millennial using Instagram, a new app. Wait, uh, he actually <laughs> said, I'm a millennial? <laughs> no, he didn't. But I was actually conducting focus group work for this this startup. And I was specifically recruiting millennials to come through and talk to me about what they were doing on their phones. Uh-huh. And it just so happens that Ahmed was doing the most interesting thing on his phone, which was creating this community of dog lovers. So he quickly became um, a, a focus of interest. <laughs> Well, lucky for you, right? Well, I, you I, needed to find some way to get her attention. Exactly. I mentioned <laughs> that I had a thousand followers on Instagram and the deal was sealed. Uh, I love it. No, really, we the focus group itself, you know, ended and then we proceeded to go on a date right afterwards. And nice. The rest is, is history. How did you happen to get Lucy? Was it when you were in college? I was in grad school at the time and I had did not grow up around dogs. It's not common for uh, in Egypt where, where I come from, my family comes from, for people to have dogs as pets. And so I'd never been around dogs and I would almost say I was maybe a little scared of dogs. Um, and, in, and in grad school, uh, my roommate got a dog and I'm not making this up. I literally, one Sunday, I had a dream that I got a dog and that I remember still to this to this day, like I in my dream, I opened up the car door and my dog jumped in and we went riding into the this beautiful day. And I woke up and I was like, I need to get a dog. And that was why I got Lucy. Um, yeah. Did you know what kind you wanted? No, oh, not at all. Just... I, I had to actually call a friend. I was like, I have a friend who's really into animals. And I called him and I was like, all right, I'm in grad school. I live in an apartment. I think I want to get a dog. I know nothing. Help me out. Like, what? how should I start yeah. thinking about this? And so he helped me out and I got a small little bug. And lo and behold, she became an Instagram superstar. Um, Ashley, did you grow up with pets? Yeah, I had dogs growing up. What was the fact that Ahmed had Lucy, was that like appealing when you guys first started dating? She was really cute and she was very friendly. So she definitely was a magnet in some ways. But the first couple years of our shared life, Lucy would tear up my shoes and oh, she challenged me. But 
now she is definitely more my dog than she is on Matt's dog. Ah, but you're 100%. moving in on her territory, probably. A little jealousy there. She she just wanted to make sure that I was the real deal and that I was committed. And, you know, <laughs> after the 10th pair of shoes she tore apart, I was still there. So my love wasn't going away. Nice. Okay, so take us back to the moment that you logged onto Instagram and grabbed the handle Dogs of Instagram. How did you think to do that? Well, first, I grabbed the handle Dogs of Minnesota. So I, you know, I to go back a little bit, I had had a personal account, uh, my my personal account, and I posted a picture of my dog Lucy and got a bunch of likes. I think that was my first post on what, Instagram. What kind of dog is Lucy for anyone who hasn't seen her? Lucy is a pug Boston Terrier mix, which is known as a bug. Um, and so I posted a picture of my goofy looking dog and got a bunch of likes. And then I posted other pictures and no one seemed to care. And I sort of <laughs> had this light bulb moment. I was like, wow, dogs are amazing and people love looking at pictures of other people's dogs including myself i was following strangers on instagram because i really liked their boston terrier their french bulldog and i just thought it would be really cool here's this new platform and it's very visual it would be really cool if there was one account you could follow that would sort of bring this community of dog lovers together i had seen pages take off on twitter i'd been really at into social media and just watching it, even though I worked in finance for my day job, mm-hmm. I was really um, just super interested in what was all what was happening on Twitter and Facebook. And, and so this was what year? I mean, this was early days of Instagram. 2011. Okay. So very early days, definitely within their first year. Well, clearly, if nobody had thought to grab dogs of Instagram, I mean, nobody had anything of Instagram at that time. It was that it was that early, and I went and I thought, okay. I'm going to make a page for Minnesota dog lovers. And that lasted about 24 hours before, you know, I was like, wait a second. I'm the first person doing this. I can, let's go bigger. And so I, you know, I brainstormed some names and came up with dogs of Instagram. And I was, what's the name that would most easily describe what this page is all about? And mm-hmm. so that that's what that was. So did it take off right away? What did, what did you do with it? The first sign that it was taking off was on day two. I had accumulated 70 followers, seven zero. And it said in my bio, you know, send a picture of your dog and we'll feature it. And I received my first real submission from a stranger. And I thought to myself, if somebody's willing to take the time to get on their email, look for a picture of their dog and send it to me so I can show it to 70 people. (laughs) Imagine if I had a thousand followers. And that's about as big as I was willing to think at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first indication of success. But 10 days in when Ashley and I met, I'd hit that thousand followers. So that's even by any standards. I mean, that was really fast. And Ashley, what did you think? Were, did this impress you? I mean, impress you enough to, to go out on a date with him. But I mean, were you impressed by the thousand followers? What did you see, you know, dollar signs? What did you think? Well, to be clear, I did not realize I was going on a date. I thought that we, I, w- I was just so excited by what he was doing and on the momentum of this pet project, a literal pet project. Mm-hmm. And so we just kept talking and talking. And then I realized, oh my gosh, we're sitting at dinner and we're having a date. Um, but what I saw was something new and exciting happening on the internet and people um, on a new forum being able to gravitate around a passion of theirs. And I thought that longer term, perhaps there was some way to monetize it. But more than anything, it was just it was 
a buzz. Like there were people and they were excited and they were sharing and they were connecting with strangers around a common interest. How quickly did the numbers multiply? I mean, I think by the time I met the two of you, I mean, I think you were already probably over a million or approaching that. It was growing quickly. So by so this was in July when we met. By fall, by like September, October, I actually kind of stopped doing dogs of Instagram. I got kind of tired of it. Posting every day. It was growing really fast. I think I was at 20,000 followers by then, which was huge. Every post I posted would make the quote unquote popular page, which is an old feature for people who were on Instagram way back in the day. And I just stopped doing it. And um, maybe a month or two later, um, Ashley was kind of checking in on things and she's like, how's it going with that? I haven't posted. I haven't posted. I haven't even looked at it in two months. And she looked and the account had doubled in followers without, without you doing anything, a single piece of content. And that was another sign that was like, oh my gosh, we really have something here. And she was really the one that forced me to to get back into it and start thinking bigger about it and start thinking about what this could lead to down the road and what it could mean. So what what did it mean? I mean, what what when what were you even thinking it could possibly be? I think at the time we didn't realize we were thinking about influencer marketing. So but that term really didn't even exist yet. So but we knew, okay, we've got a lot of eyeballs. Surely and we and those eyeballs have a very specific interest, which is dogs. And so surely for marketers, there must be something interesting here. And so maybe if this platform keeps growing down the road, we could post on behalf of brands or businesses. That was about that, that as far as we could think or mm-hmm. see. So so what did you do? Did you start going after marketers? I did a little bit in the beginning. I was literally like would Google like pet stores and just like email people and they would be like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't even know what Instagram is. is. And yeah. So it, it didn't work. Um, we just kept focusing on the account and the community and we invested the next year or two in that. And around the time Dogs of Instagram was about 200,000 followers, um, I a new company that was just getting started called uh, BarkBox came knocking and they were our first paying client. They, and it was the wild, wild west. They were like, we want to advertise with you. How much do you charge? And we're like, we don't know. And so we ended up coming up with some, some deal that was like based on performance. So it was like some amount of money per thousand likes or something like that. Were you, were you just, was there even like a way to Google what people were charging for Instagram posts? What, did that even exist? Instagram sponsored posts didn't exist in 2012. At least not, it wasn't easy to suss them out and mm-hmm. find them. Yeah. I mean, we tried to look at like more traditional marketing metrics and use them as um, reference points, mm-hmm. but it was just like a, a wild west. So 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 did that um did bark bark box is that right? did did that did that lead to more sponsorships yeah so we continued working with bark box um for a, a number of years and they they that strategy for them got you know got huge and worked really well they're uh-huh. a multi hundred million dollar company now um and that also led to opportunities with other brands. We worked with um, Purina for a long time. Um, and 
it started to yeah dogs of instagram was was getting monetized at the time and was going from this prep project to an actual business and so at what point did you decide to quit your day jobs so in spring of 2014 we closed a year-long contract with purina and so that was kind of our anchor our big client and you had like how many followers on dogs of instagram at that point at that point, probably in the hundreds of thousands. Okay. And um, so we started to see, okay, like there's something here. Um, and the thought of leaving our jobs and finally pursuing something entrepreneurial. Mind you, up to that point, with Dogs of Instagram and with my full-time job, I was also trying to start a bunch of other things all the time. Mm. Like I, at that point, I had decided like I want to be an entrepreneur. But that hadn't occurred to you when you were at business school because, I mean, you could have taken the entrepreneurial track. I thought that you had to go out into the world and work for 20, 30 years <laughs> to get the experience you need to then finally be qualified to start a business. That okay. was like the narrative that I told myself for some reason. And mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until um, a few years later out of grad school that I realized, no, all these people my age are, are launching things all the time and you just kind of figure it out as you go. So did you have ideas or did you? Yeah, I had a friend from grad school and we would meet up and I had I had so many ideas. A, a lot of them, unfortunately, were like app or, or like website ideas that I and I wasn't a coder. So that was always my problem. Like I had the, a really good idea, but I was always missing who was actually going to execute this for free. Right, <laughs> right, right. You need money to hire developers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So in, in, anyway, in 2014, we started playing around with the idea of doing something entrepreneurial. And we literally sat down. And we're like, what would we do if we left our jobs? Like Dogs of Instagram is not a full-time job. What what can we do with that platform that could be our own and that we can scale into the future and really build a business around? And luckily for us, up until that point, we had diverted all of our sponsorship money into kind of a nest egg we hadn't touched. So as we started to think about ideas, we also had a little bit of cash to infuse into whatever idea we landed on. And, and Ashley, did this appeal to you, the idea, first of all, I mean, was entrepreneurship something that you had ever considered? And did the idea of starting something or building something appeal to you? I think in 2014, I didn't realize that I was interested in entrepreneurship, but I was interested in ideas. And so even going back to 2011, when I met Ahmed and he had this great idea for a community, it was just easy to get behind. And so we explored a lot of ideas together, but it was when we landed kind of on the building of a brand mm -hmm. that I, I was like, this is a really good idea. This is a big dream. I can get behind this. And, and was the initial thought that that brand would be Dogs of Instagram? Or how quickly did you arrive at no, Lucy & Co.? We, 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 we identified an issue at that point, which was that our brand, Dogs of Instagram, contained the word Instagram, <laughs> which we thought this could be a problem down the road. Furthermore, it is an Instagram account. We do not own it. Instagram owns it. Um, they could outlaw sponsored posts. They could just shut us down. They could they could go under. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, social media platforms at the time, it was still pretty new. So you didn't know. It's easy to look back now and say, oh, Instagram is a big thing. But at the time, we didn't know if Instagram was going to be around in a few years. So we were like, in this moment, we have a platform and we have influence. How can we take that and parlay it into something we do actually own? What would that asset be? And that's when we started saying, well, we should build a brand 
maybe um let's get into retail we both have that background and uh, that passion for retail and so let's let's build something and so we started brainstorming and one of the things we noticed right off the bat was just from our vantage point doing dogs of instagram was that dog owners like us and especially in our age group were thinking about their dogs a lot different than maybe past generations um specifically that we really thought of our dogs as as children and that played into how we shopped for them and so we thought who are the dominant retailers in um in the world of pet right now and it felt like there was really an opportunity for a, a brand to be born that would be more focused on you know quality and thoughtful design and treat pet products less as a commodity and so we thought okay we're going to launch a curated shop of the best stuff that's out there we're going to call it Lucy and go after our dog and we're going to promote it on dogs of Instagram. So that was the initial concept. And what happened? We did that for a number of years. So Lucy and Co. launched in what, 2015, 14? No, we launched it that same year in August of 2014. Ashley and I quit our jobs the same week, one week before our planned go live date. Um, at that point, I had left Target and I was uh, working in management consulting for a very serious company um that you know focused on the airline industry and so when i went into my boss's office he was like to do what (laughs) that's not true there was an article that came out in the star tribune ahead of that 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 outed me as the owner like nobody at my nobody even honestly a lot of my friends didn't know i was doing this but how did the star tribune figure it out um i don't know i can't remember instagram yeah (laughs) they found us yeah and they interviewed us and so Everybody found out we were doing dogs of Instagram and yeah. everyone was so excited and, and people at my office were excited uh, and just thought it was so cool. And um, so, but anyway, I still, when I went into my boss's office, I mean, he was just like, wait, what, what, <laughs> what are you planning to do? And um, were you, was there part of you that was a little scared? Like, what oh, am yeah. I doing? <laughs> Absolutely. But I also knew that if I didn't do it, then I would never do it. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I don't have that many responsibilities right now i'm young i have this opportunity like what is i kept saying to everybody i was like what is the worst that could happen right i have to go look for a job again sure then i'm right back where i started it's not that big of a deal and i don't think it'll be that big of a a knock on my resume or my career i think i can just say hey i was doing something sure the two of you were not married yet when you started this we were not married yeah how did you did you go in when you quit your jobs i mean were you going to be 50 50 partners in lucy and co like how did you divide responsibilities what was the plan we we didn't have a lot of plans a lot of things we just did and without thinking that far ahead because honestly i think at the time we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously like we just wanted to be scrappy and just see what happens. We didn't want to really think about it as a business yet and like splitting up assets. And, you know, we almost didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. So we just we just quit our jobs, launched the website that I made myself with zero website making experience. And for the next few years, we just kept trying different things and iterating on the concept. And it wasn't really until about a year and a half ago that Lucy and Co. evolved into what it is today, which is a direct-to-consumer um, lifestyle brand for pet parents. So all of these years in between, what were the two of you living on? 
So, you know, we were fortunate to, at that point, um, Dogs of Instagram had its own income stream. Mm -hmm. And so we were fortunate to be able to live on that. And then Lucy and Co. was basically self-funding itself by like year two or three. So it wasn't profitable. It certainly wasn't the a significant part of our income, but at least we didn't need to keep infusing our dogs of Instagram cash into it. It it was self-funding at that point. And so we were able to live off you know, what we made on Dogs of Instagram. And you had enough money coming in from Dogs of Instagram sponsorships that, that you could you could live, you could pay rent, you could yep. buy food. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, especially because um, what happened is, I think it was in 2014 that Instagram opened up the app to Android. There was a time, number of years, when Instagram was only available on iPhone. Mm-hmm. And when they opened it up to Android, they opened it up to like this, the half the world that didn't have access. And so the Instagram just blew up and we blew up with it. So we went from, I mean, there was a period of time where we gained net 1 million new followers, I think in six months. Hmm. It it's- was an incredible time of growth. And it was also the height of the influencer marketing craze. Yeah. And we were like at the top of it, you know, people were just shocked. How many followers do you have? I mean, there's people with 50,000 followers were getting amazing deals. And so, and you had four millions millions at that point. Yeah. One and then two and then three came really quick and then four came a little slower and now it's really plateaued and it's really slow for everyone. Hmm. Interesting. Is, I mean, do you think, is that it? Has it peaked? In terms of like follower gain, I think so. And it almost doesn't matter at this point. Um, we've got our base of followers and that's that's great and it, and it works wonderfully. But you have to think at some point, any app, I mean, Instagram as a whole has reached a saturation point. Once right. everybody has it, how do you get new followers? So what was your strategy as far as making sure that, I mean, you want to make sure that your audience wants to continue coming to Dogs of Instagram. If it becomes all advertising all the time, you're going to lose them. What was your strategy? How did you keep it interesting? Well, early on, we identified that the content had to feel native and organic and it still had to be of interest. So I think maybe one or two times we put up something that felt inauthentic and felt very addy and it was poorly received. Hmm. So we really leaned hard into our community and um, the beautiful creation of dog photos. And we were really adamant when we would work with new advertisers, onboarding them and new brands, telling them like, hey, you have to do something that feels like the rest of our feed and we're not going to post it and we're not going to work together if it doesn't feel real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately for us, I think the brands were hearing that from everyone at that time. That was a big thing was all these influencers were realizing the same thing that if we just started spamming our audience with ads that they would be turned off in a way. Um, And so everyone was having those conversations with brands like, how do we make this feel more organic? But also I'm only willing to post X number of times per month. Sure. Were there any, as as Instagram changed things or it became required that you had to label something as an ad or sponsored, was there anything that that gave you pause or made you think, oh my gosh, this could fall apart or that really, you know, changed the dynamics as far as the income goes? 
nothing i mean there were definitely constantly you know new rules um whether regulatory uh or from instagram um that would that we've just made a sure we followed and we're paying attention to um but i think the more impactful thing was that the influencer world got really saturated Mm -hmm. so with the rise of dogs of instagram and its popularity so came thousands upon thousands of dog accounts of copycat accounts and so we could see into the future and we, we, we knew that dogs of Instagram itself wasn't our future. It was awesome. It was this great community that we built. But to think that we were going to build a career, a life and a company around influencer marketing, it felt to us like that probably wasn't a great long term plan. Mm hmm. So originally Lucy and Co. was a platform which made sense. You could advertise it on dogs of Instagram and drive followers. And I imagine, I mean, you built up a a decent following pretty quickly because of your enormous community. Um, But you were selling other people's products. It took a while to realize you needed to develop your own products. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we we realized that the things that we wanted to put in front of our customers, the things we thought our customers wanted really didn't exist in the world. And when they did, it, it was really challenging a lot of the times to work with a lot of these mom and pop shops. They were hand making things. It was it was fun and our customers loved the brand and what we stood for, but it wasn't it became apparent that it wasn't scalable. That we needed to think about a model that could scale. Um, and grow into something bigger. And so we were like, hey, let's just test making our own line of products. And so we started with a simple dog bandana, which felt like the easiest possible thing to make. And we found um, fabric distributors, we found sewers, and we launched a line of Lucy and Co. tagged dog bandanas. And they were pretty quickly our best-selling line of products. And that, you know, then kind of led to us you know, focusing more on product development and, and really thinking about our assortment and, and then growing from there. So how did you do that? I mean, did you, are you two designing the products? Did you hire product developers? That's a whole different business. Yeah, absolutely. So with the bandanas, um, you know, we we were able to design it because it's, it's quite simple. Um, and then we through literally Googling and asking, we figured out how we can buy fabric at wholesale. And then Ashley, because she has such an eye for uh, fashion, for trends, um, and such a love for retail and understanding of our customers, she was um, the person who selected our prints and patterns, which is a big part of why people love Lucy and Co. It's our aesthetic. It's our selection. It resonates with people. We hear that all the time. One of the biggest things we hear in our reviews on our website is, oh my gosh, I can't believe how many compliments my dog gets. <laughs> it's And who doesn't love that, right? Extremely common uh, you know, sentiment that we hear in, in reviews. Yeah. And because we were born on social, our product has to be Instagrammable. It has to be 
something you want to photograph and share yeah. and you want to get those in real life compliments and you want to get those likes as well. <laughs> of course. Um, at the same time that you were doing this, there were other big pet retailers emerging. I think about like Chewy.com uh, and obviously just competing against Amazon and all that. So so did you consciously, obviously aesthetics are, are important to you guys. Did you know you didn't want to be in the business of selling just like dog food? This was going to be something elevated? Yeah, I mean, so companies like Chewy were, they were really a supply chain and customer service company that said, this is a huge industry that we think can move online. And that's basically what they did. They just wanted to change consumers' behavior from shopping in the store to shopping online, which I think was a pretty easy sell. Everybody was moving to purchasing things online. I think what we were, our hypothesis was that in the future, people are going to buy different things for their dog, um, including clothes, for example. <laughs> and so we went heavy into categories and um, a product development approach that I think companies like Chewy stayed away from. They they wanted to move everything online, but they still thought very much of pet as a commodity. Mm. Best value. Everybody just wants to get a collar for their dog, so it needs to be the cheapest possible collar. Um, and we were saying, no, that's actually not the case. We think there's this giant group of people who and growing that is going to shop for their dog more like they would shop for their children. Hmm. And so that that realization and that hypothesis is what drives everything we do from our marketing to our approach to our website to how we do customer service and community. We're really trying to build the brand that you know, you adopt a dog and you want to start looking at gear and clothes and accessories and your needs, you think to go to Lucy and Co. Um, because if nothing else, they're going to take care of you. So community and customer service is extremely important to us. We want people to have such a great experience when they shop at Lucy and Co. Them to have a fun experience too. So with our products, we a lot of people think their dog is the best dog on earth and has a unique personality. And we want to supply a product that can match that uniqueness and that special connection between that human and that dog. Do, do, uh, what is your best seller today? So our harnesses in general are our best sellers. We, there's one particular harness called the posy pink harness, which is, uh, probably our, our best selling product overall. Uh, although at this time of year, um, last year, Ashley said, you know, we need to make teddy vests for dogs. And I thought, <laughs> are you serious? I came in today wearing a teddy pile jacket. And a lot of times our inspiration is pulled from either our toddler's closet mm -hmm. or the things that I'm gravitating towards. Um, I think back to 50th in France and being 16 and how exciting it was to buy a uh, velour jumpsuit. <laughs> and I'm I, here I am in my 30s and I feel like I want to bestow that to Lucy. Like I want Lucy to have velour for the winter ahead. <laughs> of course, every dog should have velour. So these teddy vests are, at this time of the year, because they're seasonal, by far and away our best-selling product. It's not even close. What do they sell for? such a huge hit, $45. Okay. How, so at this point, you how much of what is being sold on Lucy & Co. is your proprietary product, your, your designs? Now 100%. Oh, my. Okay. And how big is the team designing and, and manufacturing and the whole bit? 
So, I mean, employees were now up to seven uh, employees. Um, about half of that is our warehouse. So this is our fulfillment operations. And then you have a customer service person, a marketing person, myself, and Ashley. Then we have a whole team of our suppliers overseas, designers that we work with um, that are you know, all over the place, freelancers and contractors, marketing agencies that we work with now. So we've really got this amazing network and support system that helps um, fuel the growth and, and, and drive us forward. And how do the two of you divide and conquer? Where Ashley, where do you spend most of your time on the business? Scrolling through social media. <laughs> Still. <laughs> I It's where I get a lot of my inspiration. I lead product development. And so I spend a lot of time dreaming and absorbing and then turning that into uh, what uh, whatever the next product is going to be, whatever the next print is. And Ahmed helps me translate that into product. And Ahmed, what do you spend your time on? Is it the money? Is it the dollars? So I'm, I'm CEO, so definitely the money and the dollars, but really everything else. And up until two months ago, that included the in all of the operations of the business. So our entire supply chain from our suppliers all the way to our customer. Uh, luckily for my sanity, I made the right choice to hire a director of operations um, when it became apparent that we're getting too big for me to continue wearing every single hat in the company. And that has been amazing because I've been able to turn my attention to growth now and really think about what the future looks like and um, both from a marketing and from a product development perspective. So now I'm spending a lot more time back on product development with Ashley, really dreaming up what does the next year or two look like for our product roadmap? Um, and then really thinking about how can we scale uh, and grow. Are your customers, are they the people that you thought they would be on Instagram? Are they millennials? Are they in the Midwest? Where where are they coming from? Yep, they're exactly who we thought we, they, they're going to be. They are, um, I would say, people who consider themselves a dog mom or a dog parent. Uh, and we literally make uh, these hats uh, that say dog mom on them. And they're one of our best selling products for for humans. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, they're they're definitely very likely on Instagram. They're, um, you know, 25 to 35, maybe 40. Um, although we found really interesting um, demographics beyond that. We, we like to talk about sometimes like dog grandma. So this is <laughs> this is uh, someone who's buying something for their children's dogs, mm -hmm. their, their grand dogs. Uh, especially during the holidays, we get a, we get an influx of that. Is dogs of Instagram, which you both still run, do, do you have a team for that, or do you two run dogs of Instagram? So we we run dogs of Instagram. I have some help, um, a couple of people who just kind of help with sorting content. Um, I still personally post every piece of content to dogs of Instagram, purely out of like habit and passion. Like I just like yeah to still be driving that passion or controlling which <laughs> it's, it's a fine kidding. line <laughs> um yeah it depends who you ask but um and then we have an agency actually that represents us now for dogs of instagram so we don't have to go out and pursue brand deals and do product development and can instead focus our time on lucy and co so but dogs of instagram continues to be a revenue stream a little bit, yeah. And yeah. and does uh, less than it was at one time? Less than it was at one time and, and certainly as a percentage of our business going from being the only revenue stream to now a very, very, very small 
Well, that's good. That's that's yeah. what you set out to do. That's what we thought. Do, do. Do, does Lucy and Co's traffic have you ever advertised anywhere other than Dogs of Instagram? Yes. So um, once we figured out the business model and got our product assortment up to a certain point, um, that was about twelve months ago. And up until that point, we had never spent a dollar on advertising or marketing. Hmm. Since then, we've brought on freelancers and marketing agencies, and now we have a healthy daily ad spend. And yeah, we advertise on social media platforms. We have an amazing email marketing channel. Um, We have an ambassador program that I'm super proud of. Um, So we have a thousand ambassadors out there that are basically an army of people who are very passionate about the brand that are out there talking about Lucy and co telling their friends about Lucy and co. And that has been um, one of the, definitely the drivers of our, of our growth as well. This pandemic, it's been just unbelievable what has happened with pet ownership. I mean, it makes sense. We're home. We have time to, to train a, an animal. What has it meant for Lucy and co? Have you felt that in, in sales? Yeah. What a, what a, what a crazy six months it's been uh, this whirlwind of, you know, we had the we had the newborn in in March, um, and then our four year old stays home from school. The pandemic's coming. We're anxious. We might not survive this. I mean, everyone's thinking that at that point. And for maybe a week or two, it was scary, and we could see a dip in in revenue and and, and a dip in business. And then it just sort of exploded, hmm. and it was it just sent us spinning. Here we are working from home. We can barely have an operation at the warehouse because the state's on complete lockdown. In the meantime, demand is way up. Traffic's up. There's so much action. People are spending money on our site. Our conversion rates are higher. And we're just like, what is going on? We're just spinning us, right? And um, it's it's been amazing. Yeah, we definitely saw an increase um, in business. And I would say the two biggest drivers are an increase in pet ownership, and an increase in online shopping. And we just were lucky enough to be in the position to benefit from both sides of that. So how have you kept it going? I mean, were you able to keep the warehouse open? Has What about the supply chain? Yeah. New so, products? Man. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we had to shut the warehouse down for two weeks when Minnesota was under the strictest lockdown guidelines. And we racked up. Uh, a few thousand orders during that time Hmm. and we had one warehouse employee and we had to get back in there and just do what we can to get caught up and we got ourselves caught up and then we were growing and we needed the warehouse we were in was getting too small and we needed to move so there was a saturday this summer where myself a few people from the team and their siblings and their friends and a couple of movers we're moving our warehouse on a Saturday and we needed to finish by six o'clock because there was an uprising oh, happening on top of it. Right. And curfews. we all needed to get home because of curfew. Of course. So, I mean, it's been one heck of a summer. Yeah. Um, has it in any way shaped the way you're thinking about business going forward, about your company or just in general? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sort of feels like we're more prepared now for anything mm-hmm. um, because of just how up and down it's been. 
these last six months. Um, it also has just sort of reinforced our own theories and hypotheses around, around what we were seeing in the market uh, about consumer behavior and trends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, somebody said this recently, but the pandemic from a technology perspective brought 2030 to 2020. So, you know, all the projections around what percent of shoppers would be shopping online or ordering things online, any of those metrics, all of a sudden, they are where people had predicted they'd be in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it just sped things up. So if you are a digital business or a platform or anything like that, all of a sudden, you are where you're maybe going to be years down the road. Is this a business that the two of you envision, you know, are you going to be doing this when you're in your 40s and your 50s? Do you talk about other ideas? What do you think? Ashley, what do you think? Depends on the day. (laughs) Our four-year-old is showing a lot of interest in learning the family business and has a lot of questions specifically about supply chain and how (gasps) orders get from uh, the warehouse to the customer. Four-year-old. So, you know, we could, this could be a family business. Maybe this is a generational thing that's going to happen for a long time. Um, Maybe he'll become a TikTok celebrity. (laughs) That's more his generation. He has the hair and the personality for it. (laughs) Um, But I think that Ahmed is such an ideas guy that um we'll see we'll see i don't know yeah i mean pre pre lucy and co my my plan was always start a business grow it exit you know get some cash and then become an investor that was always my my thought because i love ideas so much and i thought wow if i can be an investor then i can be involved in like multiple great ideas at once and never be running a company, which I always thought I never want to run a company. I just want to get a company started, hand it off to somebody who's a good CEO and let her, let them run it. All of a sudden here, I am a CEO. Really this summer for the first time, I had a real team, meetings and schedules and I'm, it's not that bad. So we'll see. <laughs> so you like it more than you thought you would. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Ashley? Is he a good CEO? Is he a better uh, entrepreneur or CEO? I'm actually really impressed by Ahmed's ability to be a CEO and to juggle everything. He jumps from, um, you know, marketing conversations into operational conversations and hiring so seamlessly. I think that he is a true jack of all trades and this is a great role for him. As you see so many, many businesses, so many people, you know, kind of get buy into the dream of being an influencer and planning to build a business on social media. You guys did it. You did it in a, in a smart way. What advice do you give to other people? And what do you think when you see people out there who, you know, say their job title is influencer? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say think bigger. Um, I think I think it's great if you've gotten to a point where you're seen as an influencer, you can consider yourself an influencer. In a lot of ways, you've already succeeded in doing something special, because you wouldn't be otherwise. So, I mean, first of all, pat yourself on the back; it's great. But before you leave your job and you know decide I'm going to be a full time influencer, one, make sure that you can generate some revenue to pay bills and rent first. Um, you know, a lot of people have asked us over the years, like, should I just quit my job and, and, and start something? And I'm like, what are you starting? Like, I don't know yet. <laughs> no, do not quit your job yet. Like we didn't quit our jobs until we had a solid idea, had already gotten gotten started on it. We'd spent six months building Lucy and Co behind the scenes and 
we had a plan financially. So, you know, it's a fine balance. I'm all for if you're young and entrepreneurial, you know, taking that leap of faith. Absolutely. But um, just make sure there's something for you to to land on and yeah. that you can land on your feet. Great advice. And Ashley, for all the time that you spend scrolling through Instagram, um, w- what do you see and, and do you, I mean, do you see this continuing as far as a, a marketing strategy? Is this just the way it is now? This is how we sell products? I think social media isn't going away anytime soon. But what I'm seeing is that people are wanting to return to uh, real life in different ways and maintain um, real connections. And so, you know, we couldn't do Lucy & Co. without all of our excited customers posting on Instagram and telling their friends about it. But I hope that at the end of the day, um, it's about the dog and about spending time together on the couch, snuggling and just rooting everything back into reality. Speaking of the dog, does Lucy know that she is, you know, kind of sits atop an empire now, a social digital empire? I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> Has her attitude become more? Is she is she does she dress a little nicer, want nicer treats? She definitely has a better wardrobe these days, but she's very humble and um, Lucy hasn't changed. She just wants to be close to us. She wants to cuddle and that's really it. Um, We like to joke. We think that Lucy has pulled the puppet strings and manipulated every single step of the way. But in actuality, she's just a silly, cute, elderly pug. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, us doing all of this, really one one thing it's caused is that we spend a lot more time with Lucy. Uh, first, when we quit our jobs, we were working from home for a couple of years. And then when we finally got an office, well, of course, it had to be dog friendly so Lucy could come. And then then the pandemic hit and we were back home, you know. And so it seems like she's, she's, she's doing something where all she wants is to spend time with us. And that's exactly what she's getting. It's all worked out. Well, it's an amazing story. Congratulations on all the success. And uh, let's hope it continues. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Great chatting with you. Great chatting with you. So many valuable insights from Ahmed and Ashley. Gosh, but if we can just get past kicking ourselves for not being the ones to start Dogs of Instagram, you can take so much away from what they've learned about direct-to-consumer retail, influencer marketing. To put it in some perspective for us, let's go back to the classroom. Kim Savile is the participating adjunct faculty of marketing and opus expert in retail marketing. And not only that, she has a golden retriever named Lucy. She was the perfect person to join us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to join you. Well, so I'm really curious what your big takeaways were listening to Ahmed and Ashley talk about the way this company has evolved. Well, one of the things that really struck me was Ahmed and Ashley's understanding of the importance of knowing their consumer. Um, understanding your consumers is really the first step in a holistic approach to e- e-commerce. Ahmed, you asked him who his target audience is, and he mentioned that he knew they were likely on Instagram, 20 to 40, or 25 to 40 years old. But he also knows that knowing that is not enough. He knows their dog parents, not dog owners but dog parents, Hmm. you know, they sell mom and dad hats, you know, um, for those proud dog parents. Right. Do you Um, have one of those? 
No, I don't, but I, I will now. I, I didn't know they existed, but I do now. Um, but that level of understanding um, is super important in order to be able to bond with customers and then build a following of individuals that trust you and trust your business. They were in a really great position as they were ramping up, heading into a year that nobody could have imagined with everybody switching to online shopping. So much about the way we all shop has changed this year. I'm curious your thoughts on that, on shopping behavior, and and how much of what's happened now will last beyond the pandemic. Well, well, my crystal ball is a little fuzzy, but it's really been predicted that, and, and we, what we've seen in the last few months is that the pandemic and online sales um, are going to outpace in-store purchases for the first time in retail history. Hmm. Um, and that pandemic has forced 10 years of changes in the way we shop and basically squeezed it into a few months. So not only are consumers nesting, and we were nesting pre-pandemic, but now we're nesting even more. Um, and lucky for Ashley and Ahmed, we're nesting with our, you know, pet children. Right. And we're stopping at online rates that were unimaginable a few months ago. Um, you know, Ahmed even mentioned that conversion rates on Lucy and Kai were really high um, due to increased pet adoption, but also online shopping. And this is only the beginning. I don't know if there's any way to predict how much of these new habits will stick, but I'm thinking a lot of them are going to stick because we've learned how easy it is and how convenient it is to get our needs met quickly, safely. You know, So I think that some of these uh, habits are really going to change for good. So true. So what would your, your best piece of advice be for anybody in a, a, a consumer brand or in retail today? Wow. Um, I think my best piece of advice would be to know your consumers at a granular, a granular level. Ashley discussed how her product development ideas came to life. And she said she laughed and said she spends time you know, researching her, her consumers on social media um, because she knows that's where they are. 80% of millennials use social multiple times a day. And one of the preferences is to post images. She knows that. So um, she knows that millennials um, stay in touch with friends and family and build community. And that's even more important in a pandemic. So to me, the key takeaway is to know your consumers at a super granule, granule level. But Kim, are there other markets out there? Well, there could be. And I think it's important not to overlook other viable markets. Um, Ahmed touched on it a little bit when he mentioned like grand dog parents. Um, and I think about it as me as a, you know, kind of this empty nester, pre-grandchildren. I've got this 19-month-old golden um, that she is sort of my like furry uh, grandchild, furry child. <laughs> so she's fitting that. My daughter's living with me right now um, with her four kitties and they're my grandkitties and she brings them up from the basement to say hi to grandma. Um, so I think that's a market that would also could be a very viable uh, market if you tapped it. Um, influencers work well with baby boomers too. Baby boomers are also on the internet. We use it differently, um, but we still, 86% of us use it every day. Right, right. So, Basically, we, you, you don't have to be a millennial to want a cool looking bandana for your golden retriever. 
No, or you're a cool-looking bandana for your daughter's golden retriever. Exactly. Great point. Kim Savile, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about our show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. If you listen on Apple, you can rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means.